to the Ridersville Foundation podcast. I'm Enid Portuguez, Communications Director for the Foundation. Today's podcast is all about the anti-hero. You know, Don Draper, Walter White, Tony Soprano, the guys who you're not supposed to root for but can't help but love. Here to guide us through the literary trope is writer Glenn Mazzara, who created the upcoming A&E series Damien, which is based on the classic horror film The Omen. You'll notice that, unlike our other events, Glenn is doing his lecture style. But don't think this is some boring school lecture, because Glenn is anything but boring. He not only covers the literary history of the anti-hero, but also how the trope carries on to TV and film today. The talk also touched upon some controversial subjects, such as diversity and gender politics. Because as it so happens, Glenn is the co-chair of the Writers Guild of America West's Diversity Committee. You'll learn a lot, laugh a good deal, and hopefully feel inspired with new ideas on how to take the anti-hero trope to new levels. Check out more event podcasts on our website, wgfoundation.org, and follow our updates on Twitter, at Writers Guild F. And lastly, enjoy this talk with Glenn Mazzara. Hello, everyone. Um, thank you for coming. I have to say it's great to see this room full. I actually feel bad that you're all here, so I hope I will make this uh, worthwhile for you. I want to thank the um, um, Larry and, and Chris and Katie Buckland and everybody at the uh, Writers Guild Foundation for having me tonight. Um, I'm going to give a version of a talk that I gave to uh, the vets a couple years ago. And when Chris called and asked, you know, would you come and give a talk, I said, yeah. And he's, he mentioned this particular topic, which I've actually been thinking a lot about, the anti-hero, um, how it's developed throughout history, um, what it has to do with male um, uh, American male identity. And so I thank you for um, the opportunity to, to be here to talk about it. So I'm going to reference a lot of different movies, books, that kind of stuff. I, I, I you know, will talk for maybe, you know, 45 minutes to an hour, and, uh, and then we'll get to questions. So I'm sort of kind of give, going to give like a more of a theoretical talk and reference, you know, different anecdotes from my experience and everything. And then um, I was just answering some questions if people want to talk about the business or anything that, you know, is more professionally rate, uh, related. I'm happy to do that, and I'm happy to answer questions afterwards. Um, I would like to say that, you know, at, uh, when I do talks like this, I love to be um, candid as possible. So if I say something, you know, be merciful. Do not tweet, oh, Glumzara just slammed this or whatever. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm here to help you um, and, and to, you know, talk honestly and critically about shows, my experience, that kind of stuff. And it's easy to take something out of context and make me look like an idiot. I'm very good at doing that myself, so please don't help me, okay? Um, and, then, and then also, as I reference some, some works or some material, just realize this this is something that's important to me, and this is something that I'm putting together my own. I'm not a professor. I'm not, you know, a teacher. And so if I have, uh, if what I'm saying doesn't really make sense or you have a different point of view, that's, that's great, and we can talk about that. But just realize that this is just something that as I look at the, the landscape of TV over my past career, um, I started as a, as a writer in 98 on Nash Bridges. And um, if you look at that, period, it's really kind of, I've run right alongside, you know, the rise of cable TV and the anti-hero and that sort of stuff. I've been very fortunate to participate in a lot of shows like that. 
So this is sort of a, a, a view from the sideline, if you will, okay? Um, so this is an examination. Um, I always wanted to be a writer, and I don't know what your experience like was like when you declared you wanted to be a writer, but I was six, and I, I said, I want to be a writer, and my uh, father said, why don't you be a lawyer? Okay? And I don't know why you would say that to a six-year-old, but very often I have a pattern in my life where I declare I'm going to do something, and as a writer, I ver the immediate response is, why would you do that? So, you know, I wanted, I originally, you know, uh, wrote some short stories in high school that were published in a magazine. Question, why would you do that? Where did you get this idea from? Um, you know, in, I wrote a uh, play that was workshopped at a college. This was just when I was finding the form. I liked writing drama. People like, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you be a novelist? When I um, decided to maybe, um, you know, write a screenplay, people were saying be a, a playwright. When I was saying, well, I'm going to, you know, become a TV writer, people would say that's hacky. Why don't you become a, a screenwriter? Because that's kind of in vogue now. When I um, worked on Nash Bridges, people were saying, well, why would you work on that show? When I um, <laughs> was going to go work on The Shield, my agent at the time was like, why would you go work on a show at FX? The fact that I was out of work for two years was a good enough answer. Um, <laughs> You know, when when I was actually, when I said I'm going to go work at AMC on a zombie show, people were like, why would you do zombies, horror, schlocky? When I just recently sold a show to uh, Lifetime, an Antichrist show, I asked myself, and many people asked me, why would you sell that to Lifetime? So, <laughs> so um, <laughs> I don't know. So I guess the question is, what am I doing here? But, the, but, the, but there's been a, a pattern of of me wanting to pursue something and just people scratching their heads, okay? So that's, that's part of it. But, but one of the things is that, let's talk about my love of TV. You know, I grew up like probably many of you, I'm more of a TV buff than I am a film buff. And I was just kind of uh, a kid that my father, didn't, he was a doctor, he didn't like us to run around a lot. And, and if you ran around and you got sweaty, he would just grab you and feel the back and see if you were sweaty and then just smack your head and say, sit down and read a book. So, so or watch TV or whatever. So my father was not go outside and play. He was actually, you're going to get your cold, sit down and watch TV. So I watched way too much TV. And when I was a teenager, I saw two, two shows that really just blew my mind. And I'm sure uh, many of you saw them. One was the MASH finale, okay? which we all know was Hawkeye, you know, have people seen this? I'm, I'm also going to give out spoilers. So it's, it's, you know, 40 years old, so go fuck yourself. But, <laughs> but, you know, Hawkeye is, you know, a surgeon, and he's lost his mind. We meet him. He's in an asylum in this particular episode, and he's, um, he's, he's you know, had some a, a nervous breakdown. And what happens is we, we understand that he was on a bus, uh, the bus was with, uh, uh, you know, people from Korea, other people from his camp, and they were, had to pull off and wait in the weeds while a patrol, I think it was a Chinese patrol or something, or North Korea, Korean patrol came through, and uh, they all had to be quiet, and there was a woman, she had a chicken on her lap, the chicken kept clucking, he goes up to the woman and says, you know, keep that damn chicken quiet, you know, or something like that. I haven't seen it since, and, and, uh, but it really affected me, and the woman kills the chicken. 
And the, the break, the re- revelation is that it was her own child. Okay. So that just blew my mind that I could be emotionally affected. You can hear my voice shaking now. I mean, that was tremendous that that was in my living room that I was like, holy shit, you can do that? Like, I didn't realize people could do that. The other uh, episode at that time was the Hill Street Blues third season premiere written by David Milch called Trial by Fury. And it was just a great story in which a, a, uh, a really, really dark episode of, of um, TV in which a, a nun is raped on an altar. And Frank Ferrillo underst- uh, uh, has the guys in custody, but he can't hold them. So he decides he's going to release them and not charge them. But it's a mob is so angry that they'll be killed. And um, Joyce Davenport comes to him at the end and she says, you know, very famously, she says, you know, there need to be rules, especially by men who wear guns and badges. And so, again, I was just astounded by the level of writing. And if you think about it, okay, and this is going to break everybody's heart, that was Milch's first TV script. He won the Emmy, the Humanitas, and uh, the Writers Guild Award. So, way to start. (laughs) Kudos to Milch. (laughs) But, but the idea was that there was something about TV that just felt like, shit, you could go there, you know? So when I started to pursue TV, I felt that I could get to that level in the sense of, of emotional connection. I had felt the impact. But TV was considered hacky. It was not considered, it's very easy to kind of forget this or whatever because everybody wants to get into TV. But when I started, it was like, it's full of hacks. It's, and why is that? Okay, we have to look at the history. It's based on radio. It's not based on film. It pushes soap. It's cheap. It's disposable. It hits certain tropes, stereotypes, and we're going to talk about a lot of this today, okay? So, so the idea was that TV was not a worthwhile pursuit. I went to work on Nash Bridges. And Nash taught me, it was, uh, Carlton Cuse was the uh, showrunner, John Worth was the number two, Sean Ryan was on the, uh, the staff there, he was a story editor, and there was some other terrific writers, and there was a, a um, the idea was I learned structure, I will say most of the times when a script's not working, it's a structural problem, okay? You're just kind of having scenes out of order, or it's not telling the, the, you're not telling the right story. And what was really important was we were taught to write for the hero. We were taught to write for the star, okay? And I'll give you this, this anecdote. Now, keep in mind that I wanted to write material that was more like The Shield, okay? That, that kind of gritty stuff, okay? I was always sort of pitching, you know, Nash's in the crack house, Nash's, you know, <laughs> someone's got a gun to somebody's head, something, something cool like that. And they said, no, we're doing uh, Nash's babysitting a celebrity chimp this week, okay? <laughs> Maybe some, I've, I've told this story in public before. And what happened was we wrote this episode in which Nash was baby. I did not write the, I've, I've helped break it though. So, so uh, Nash's babysitting a celebrity chimp and at the end of the episode at the end of the episode um, the chimp bananas turns out to be female and has a crush on Nash and Nash has to have a breakup scene with bananas saying hey it's not really going to work with two different people coming from two different worlds right and they wrote that scene and they were just about to release it and everybody got cold feet thinking Don Johnson's going to think we're making fun of him 
So he, so they changed it to Cheech is is the one that sort of breaks up with with the the thing. And we got a call, and it was it was the only time Don ever called the writers' room, as far as I know. And they said uh, Don's on the call; he wants to be put on speaker in the writers' room. <laughs> so everyone's terrified. And he gets on and he says, um, "What fucking show are you cocksuckers working on?" <laughs> That fucking monkey loves Nash. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right? So it was a valuable lesson. It was how do you write for number one on the call sheet? Um, but uh, it was still, you know, you know, protecting bananas. So, uh, so it wasn't really exactly what, what, where my heart was, okay? So... Then after that, I was out of work for, for two years, and then I went to um, The Shield. All right, now The Shield, the dirty secret about The Shield is The Shield is basically uh, Nash Bridges on steroids. Okay, it's adrenalized, it's, it has a lead hero, it's, 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 it moves fast, there's a certain amount of style. Um, the one thing that Sean Ryan will not tell people is that, you know, the, the Kid Rock song at the end of the S.H.I.E.L.D. pilot, well, we got that from Nash Bridges. What happened was we had this horrible, boring scene where Nash goes to a crime scene and everybody's like, oh, God, it's another crime scene. So we just played that Kid Rock, Rock song over a Nash Bridges teaser and Nash was like, that's the fucking show. Don was like, that's the fucking show. That's Miami Vice. That's what we she would be doing, but Sean loved the song so much that he just kept playing it as he was writing the Shield pilot, and that ended up making it into that thing. And if you watch the end of the Shield pilot, that song drives so much action. But it really, the roots of the Shield and everything we did on the Shield was just coming out of Nash Bridges. Okay, so um, don't tell Sean I told you that. <laughs> so around this time. There was a, a shift, okay? Now, I would love to say that the S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, shifted things into that people thought we could do quality. The truth is, when the S.H.I.E.L.D. came out, people did not like the S.H.I.E.L.D., okay? It was after 9-11. We were doing corrupt cops that were shooting people in the face. Uh, people thought we were horrible, okay? And it was not accepted when it came out. Everybody was talking about The Sopranos and Six Feet Under and everything that was happening on HBO. I'd like to talk about HBO for a second because HBO sort of challenged the TV model, okay? Their slogan is, it's not TV, it's HBO. All right, let's think about this. It, it's, it's not, it's TV, okay? <laughs> but their marketing is that it's better than TV, it's something else, okay? So, which was interesting because I would say, yeah, I work on, you know, you know you're at a dinner party. And I was like, I love that show. And I was like, yeah, I, I work in TV. And I was like, yeah, no, I don't watch TV. I, 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 but I watch The Sopranos, but it's not really TV. I'm like, yeah, it is. <laughs> so anyway, so the idea was that The Sopranos was filmic. The Sopranos was cinematic. The Sopranos was, was um, you know, like making a film every week, okay? This, this, this particular statement irritates the shit out of me when I hear people say this because you're making a TV show every week and it's just, I think, film snobbery, 
Okay. What happened was, though, the idea was that TV could not survive as TV because it originally has its roots in radio, like I said, and it's disposable and cheap. So it needs to be more expensive, which it was, and it needs to be something else. There were two other things that happened. So, so this didn't work with The Wire. You, nobody ever says The Wire is like watching a film every week. Maybe you say it. I don't hear that. What I hear is it's like a novel. It's a Dickensian novel. Okay, I've read Dickens. This is not a Dickensian novel. But what people mean is it's a complex uh, uh, social novel, let's say. Again, the TV form is not enough for... it's not credible. So it needs to be something else. Okay. And again, because TV is considered or was considered disposable. All right. So you can see I'm rooting for TV. So then, so then you also had the, uh, right around this time you had DVDs come out, DVDs, um, eventually TV shows were released on DVDs. Now think about this because it was only, you would only collect films. Now suddenly t- uh, shows are collectible. They sit on your shelf, they have a spine, they look like books, they look like films, they're just as good. So you have this kind of weird shift in form around the time that you have a certain type of storytelling about uh, you know complex characters, but we had complex characters on TV. We had heart uh, amazing, heartfelt stories. I mean, think about the, the MASH and, and the Hill Street Blues that I told you from the 80s. So we had those things, and yet the perception had to change about TV. Okay? So now you, what you start to get is you get the rise of the anti-hero around this time. You get Tony Soprano, Vic Mackey, Don Draper, Walter White, I would say Nurse Jackie, House, Jack Bauer, and it continues. You know, Ray Donovan, Saul Goodman, uh, the characters on Game of Thrones. Uh, you know, look at who's nominated for an Emmy. You know, um, Better Call Saul, Game of Thrones, Homeland, um, House of Cards, you know, True Detective, um, Orange is New, but it really, you know, The Walking Dead, Hannibal, really complex dark anti-hero characters. So I'd like to kind of talk about now, not all of these fit the model, but let's talk about some of the tropes that we, that I feel represent the anti-hero, okay? Is this interesting to people or am I, okay. I'm just as needy as you are, okay. The anti-hero, tell me, now think about, think about, um, think about what you see on TV Think about tropes that you see in films and TV. Think about Fox News. Okay, think about, but, think, but seriously, think about um, the TV landscape and tell me if these traits ring true, if this character makes sense. I see the anti-hero as white, middle-aged male, a loner, emotionally isolated, sexually attractive, usually a womanizer, unfaithful, a heavy drinker, substance abuser, self-destructive, has a sloppy personal life but values family, protects the children and the weak, has a code of honor, usually of brotherhood, loyalty, will not commit sexual assault, even though women are throwing themselves at him, is willing to sacrifice himself, cannot integrate himself into the larger community, although he protects that community. He's proficient with guns and the craft of fighting. He's scarred, battle-weary, usually uneducated, um, honest, not politically savvy in the sense that does not play politics or Machiavellian games, given to fits of rage and anger, fights corruption in the sense that he's willing to stand up against a corrupt system, usually a loner, is not good with money, very often broke, has a broken down car, decisive, impulsive, 
can be racist, can be sexist, is exceedingly violent, understands violence of the surrounding threatening world. Okay, we'll go back to that. That's important. I said protect of the weak. Um, keeps the wolves at bay. The anti-hero, the hero I'm describing, keeps the monsters from the door. Okay? Does not enjoy killing, but is more than willing to kill. Usually has killed many times. The hero, anti-hero, is a frontiersman. It, uh, he is a soldier on the front line. Okay, think about that character. We've seen that character a gazillion times, okay? And I would say that those traits are true for both the hero and what we consider the anti-hero. And I would posit tonight that the American hero is the anti-hero. They're, they're one and the same. There's no, there is no anti-hero. Sorry, I, I fooled you. We're not here. It's, it's, the, it's the same thing, okay? So a lot of this, where does this come from? And let's back this up. And I'm going to kind of go into, I, I have a degree in English, so I'm going to go into my English nerdville stuff. So just bear with me. Okay, a lot of this comes from the Western myth. Okay, and I'll cite a, a, a scholar, John G. Kowelti, C A W E L T I, who wrote a book called Adventure, Mystery, and Romance. This is a scholarly book on different formulas that we use when we are writing fiction. Okay, basically, the Western myth is this there is a town civilization back east. It is moving across the country, okay? The, there are threatening Native Americans and there are threatening bandits, lawless men who are probably threatening the town. These men are killers. They are bloodthirsty. They kill kids. They rape women. The gunslinger, usually a retired gunslinger, is needed, receives a call to action, has to pick up their guns one more time, even though they've sworn them off, and go and use an excessive amount of violence and force to eliminate the threatening force. One, because they speak the same language of violence. It all revolves around violence. Once the threat is eliminated, the gunslinger cannot integrate into society. Okay, They very often have trouble standing still, they need to ride off into the sunset, they die, they sacrifice themselves, or what have you. But that Western myth, okay, is what I would say is sort of the, the core of the anti-hero that we see, all right? Now think about, now that's not so hard to understand. We've seen this in a thousand Westerns, the searches, you know, you, you can name a thousand. We've seen this kind of, uh, this kind of character. Now, I would say that, you know, where does this, you know, it comes from Hollywood Westerns. Let's back that up. Where do Hollywood Westerns come from? They've come from pulp fiction. Okay, now pulp, everybody knows, is, you know, it's named for the pulp paper, the cheap paper that it was written on. It was disposable. Okay, it was meant to be mass consumed. It was a lot like TV in a sense. Okay, it relies on stereotypes. That's why a lot of TV, a lot of Westerns, a lot of this, this uh, other types of stories have stereotypes, both sexual and racial stereotypes built into them because the, the pulp is, uh, is to be mass consumed and therefore is applying to the lowest common denominator. 
Okay, so it indulges in stereotypes. Okay, pulp literature also then, other versions of it are not just Westerns, but it develops the detective story and the science fiction story. And early detective stories and early science fiction stories very often use racial and sexual stereotypes. Okay? Now, certain writers, okay, Robert Heinlein, Arthur C. Clarke, um, um, Raymond Chandler, introduce, now these, these guys know how to write, so they introduce a certain level of craft into these fields, into the liter literature, and they uh, also include uh, just, just better writing to, uh, in a sense, makes it feel more real, more approachable, more accessible, less applying it to the, uh, uh, appealing to the lowest common denominator. So they put a new spin on material. So let me just read to you um, uh, the last few passages of Raymond Chandler's essay, um, which is the, uh, the Simple Art of Murder. Okay, so bear with me. Okay, so this is what Chandler is describing as the detective hero, and I'm saying that we've seen this character in detective movies, film noir, and, and crowds the TV landscape today. Okay, so Chandler writes, in everything that can be called art, there is a quality of redemption. It may be pure tragedy, if it is high tragedy, and it may be pity and irony, and it may be the raucous laughter of the strong man. But down these mean streets, a man must go who is not himself mean, who is neither tarnished nor afraid. The detective in this kind of story must be such a man. He is the hero. He is everything. He must be a complete man, and a common man, and yet an unusual man. He must be, to use a rather weathered phrase, a man of honor. By instinct, by inevitability, without thought of it, and certainly without saying it, he must be the best man in his world and a good enough man for any world. I do not care much about his private life. He is neither a eunuch nor a, a satyr. Um, I think he might seduce a duchess, and I, my, I am quite sure he would not spoil a virgin. If he is a man of honor in one thing, he is that in all things. He is a relatively poor man, or he would not be a detective at all. He is a common man and could not go out among common people. He has a sense of character, he would not know, or he would not know his job. He will take no man's money dishonestly. Well, that's not true for a lot of, but okay. Um, and no man's insolence without a due and dispassionate revenge. He is a lonely man, and his pride is that you will treat him as a proud man or be very sorry you ever saw him. He talks as the man of his age talks, that is, with rude wit, a lively sense of the grotesque, a disgust for sham, and a contempt of pettiness. Okay? And it goes on. But you understand that that uh, there's a trope here that we use that is, is, is I could go on, but I, I feel like I'm reading too long. Anyway, so now we have a realism in literature and, and film, and, and, and I would say that there's a realism that comes into cable TV that elevates the form so that it feels different, even though the, the, the uh, tropes, the stories, the things we're telling are very similar to what has always been on TV, and yet it feels new and fresh, okay? So let me geek out a little bit more. Bear with me, okay? Because I find this very interesting. I, I'm just going to tell you, so I don't care. <laughs> Where does this anti-hero come from, this American anti-hero, this frontiersman, this, this um, person who is protecting us from the wolves at the door, okay? I think this could be traced back to James Fenimore Cooper, the character Natty Bumpo, 
in the Pioneers, The Last of the Mohicans, okay? The Pioneers was written in 1823. Last of the Mohicans was written in 1826, okay? Think of all the traits that I'm describing that is in this character. That's how old this trope is. That's how long it's been around. Okay, let's talk a little bit about Cooper, who is an early American writer, right, who is, who is dealing with rejecting the old sort of uh, the old European traits. When we think about, you know, an anti-hero in a crime drama or a uh, anywhere on TV or whatever, usually the educated, the people back east, the Europeans, they're a, a, a little um, um, effeminate, they're weak, they're corrupt, they're snobs, they're, they're, they're you know, the traits that are being rejected by the Ameri new American identity. Now, uh, Last of the Mohicans, the Pioneers, uh, all of these leather stocking tales are romantic novels, not romances, but romantic novels, which are, you know, reacting against the rationalism of the Age of Enlightenment. Think about the antihero goes by their gut, okay? They were uneducated, I said. And they go against the um, Industrial Revolution. They're usually fighting against some type of system. Okay? Um, the romance is supposed to elicit intense emotional responses. Okay? And it has to do with... Now, the, everybody knows romantic literature. It has to do with, you know, poetry, uh, literature, all of that stuff. Um, but what they're trying to go for is a heightened emotion like fear terror, excitement, action. This plays into Pulp Fiction. This is the kind of stuff that we write for when we try to, we want to get an emotional reaction, okay, when we are writing TV. I mean, think about it. I'm almost crying over a MASH episode I saw 40 years ago or whatever, okay? So that's an intense emotional reaction that's coming out of this type of literature, all right? So the, the uh, romantic heroes are usually anti-urban. They, they fight against uh, an urban sprawl, and it's about self-assertion, self-expression, uh, American traits. Think about that, you know, uh, America trying to define itself is all about rejecting the old, and here's a character that is created that becomes the most popular character of, of, of that day and then extends all the way through to what we're doing now. Okay, it's about um, uh, a new beginning, if you will. Okay, but that's going to be a violent. Uh, that new beginning is going to be violent. All right. Now, one of the things that I think is interesting is that Natty Bumpo. Now, I don't know if this is interesting to you, but I think it's interesting to me. Is his first kill is a Native American named Hawkeye. And when I put that together yesterday, I was like, "Fuck!" And I remember that. Hawkeye pierces, somebody asked him, why are you named Hawkeye? And he says, because my father was, was his, my father's favorite novel was Last of the Mohicans. So I knew that, but I didn't make this connection until I was put, organizing the material for this. So I don't know what to do with that, but I feel like I found something kind of cool. Okay? But if you look at those characters, okay, if you look at, at the character in the Leather Stocking Tales, uh, Hawkeye there and Hawkeye and Mesh, these are both soldiers in pain. These are both, you know, the, the Last of the Mohicans is written about the French and Indian War. They are both soldiers in pain. And what happens is I think that a lot of the, the, the conflict that we come from, that we see in the antihero, is that there is a pain that is written right into a, an inconsolable pain. 
okay, that is so painful that the character can never heal, can never integrate into society. They have to keep moving on, and they bring their pain with them, okay? So that is an emotional rift that these characters can never close. And so what happens is the character is always on watch, always ready for another threat. In a sense, it's like a watcher on a wall. Now, that's a good transition to get into current TV, like Game of Thrones. And I would say that we have what we see now. Okay, let's talk about what we are seeing today in film and TV. All right? Now, we know that often, very often, film, TV represents the social anxieties of the time. So in the 50s, we have a lot of alien movies because we're afraid of being invaded by the Russians. And we're afraid that we don't know who to trust, so these, we, we, we are worried about communists among us, so we do the body snatches. Okay, we're worried about missiles coming across the Pacific, so we have UFO movies. Okay, in the 70s, late 60s, early 70s, there's a tremendous amount of violence in Vietnam, which is making itself onto TV for the first time. So we get exceedingly violent, at the time, movies like Bonnie and Clyde. Okay, this is all, this is not me, this is well documented. Water straight, Watergate will beget, you know, conspiratorial movies like Three Days of the Condor. So clearly, after 9-11, we have a lot of end-of-the-world movies. We have disaster movies, and it's coming from everywhere. So there's volcanoes, there's earthquakes, there's everything, right? But we also have now a constant state of war, all right? If you look at superhero movies, I don't even know who they're fighting in superhero movies anymore. They're just fighting and breaking buildings and all of that shit, right? Game of Thrones, I don't know what's going on in Game of Thrones, and I watch it all the time, <laughs> but they are in a constant state of war. Walking Dead is a constant state of war, and those characters justify all of their actions by, we just need to win the war. We just need for our side to win, okay? So I think what we see is that we have uh, uh, the, the anti-hero, I would posit, that the anti-hero, the warrior, the soldier, is the predominant story that we are seeing today because America finds itself at a constant state of war. Now, if you don't believe me, we know that we are fighting a war on terror. We've just fought two wars in the Middle East. We lost the war on drugs. There's a war on Christianity, depending on who you ask. There's a war on women, and I think everyone's gearing up for this year's war on Christmas, okay? <laughs> so America review sees itself constantly at war. In fact, there's probably a panic right now. We're not at war, so we have to veto this, this uh, Iran deal so we can get a good war going. But uh, it, it's, it's that there is something about... America and its war, and right now, that is what we see on a lot of TV shows, a lot of film, and I feel that it's, it's, it's a, a representation of, of a communal anxiety, okay? Now, um, let's talk about, let's, uh, and, 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 and you have to think about when we're talking about, now this could be incendiary, and I, and I might as well stir things up now, right? 
But I would say that there's been a shift. If you look at the TV of the 90s, okay, and the TV of, you know, the 2000s, because I didn't really see film and TV, even though, you know, it was after Vietnam. You don't really see um, on TV in particular uh, 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 this type of war. You see more detective shows or whatever, you know, and you see, you see characters kind of servicing a greater good. You see, you know, ER. You see West Wing. Compare West Wing to House of Cards, okay? You know, you couldn't really make West Wing today, all right? You couldn't, you know, compare House to ER, okay? And my thing with West Wing is that the, the, the traits that West Wing is positing of democracy, collaboration, negotiation, the anti-hero sees those things as weakness, okay? And I would even go so far as to say that a lot of this anti-hero stuff has reached a, a type of public rhetoric that is affecting American culture right now, okay? So if you look at, you know, Trump's rhetoric, all right, and I'm sure nobody wants me to get political or whatever, but if you look at Trump's rhetoric, okay, he claims that he is the only straight talker who's going to save us from the threat at the border. He is positing himself as an American hero and that the truth, that the democracy, the group, cannot be trusted. We need to be saved by ourselves, from ourselves, okay? This is very often, um, um, I, think, I think this was kind of put forward, you know, if you look at like how presidents sort of uh, presented themselves, it was, I, I traced this to when Ronald Reagan said, go ahead, make my day. You know, he took a Clint Eastwood line and brought it into the Oval Office and all of a sudden it's like, oh, that's what a president it's supposed to be, okay? Not necessarily ruling, and if you try to collaborate, what's that? Oh, if you try to collaborate, you try to negotiate, you're seen as weak, okay? Now, I will say, you know, I've been up here, and I've spoken about gun control, I've spoken about violence, I'd like to just talk about that, because I think that this, this view of the uh, American hero, okay, is tied up in white male identity, and it's being talked about as if it's a, as if the myth is real, okay? So everybody needs a gun so that we can, you know, protect ourselves from the threat. Okay, this is this is I'm for gun control, but a lot of the times that the argument is made, well, if more guns will lead to um, safety because we will recognize the threat and will eliminate that threat. Most people cannot recognize that threat, right? You see the point? But you say, well, then everybody's got a gun. How can we trust you? And it's like, well, just trust us. We have that code. You see what I'm saying? So it doesn't really, um, um, I, I think what happens is, in a sense, this, this, this anti-hero, I don't think that necessarily people um, um, see stuff on TV and go out and do that, but I think the messages and the, 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 the psychology behind these powerful messages that get reiterated over and over affect people's thinking and affect how people should um, um, feel they should act and how other people should act, okay? So I'm not sure if that's making sense, but one of the things that you have to think about this, the dark side of the uh, uh, American hero, the American anti-hero, is that there's a, a level of racism in that trope. Now, I would say that this hero, anti-hero, is the predominant 
trope that we're seeing on film and TV, and I think that it's, it's inherently racist because it has a white point of view in which American Indians and other people of color are either savages or noble savages, okay? What's the highest grossing movie of, any t of all time is Avatar. What is the message of that movie, okay? So that's something to be very mindful of when you are writing your material. It's hard as a white male to adopt another POV. Now, one of the things that I think is wonderful about the current state of TV is that there are many POVs that are being brought forward. But as a showrunner, I'm, I'm running my fourth show, it's, it, it, you fall into these tropes, and I'll talk about you know, certain tropes that, that, that are traps, but it's something that I want to put forward to say that we have a responsibility as writers to look at the messages we are putting out there, the points of view, the perspectives, okay? And this stuff, and what I'm trying to convey tonight is this stuff is ingrained into the American psyche way, way back. So it's hard for one person to just kind of unravel it and cure everything. You see what I'm saying? So I'm trying to, I guess, maybe spark debate, bring something forward that I think is important, something that's infected my writing, but, um, and, and hopefully this, this topic is helpful to people. Now, I'll also say that there's a certain amount, and we've talked about the, uh, a certain amount of sexism in the American um, um, hero, anti-hero, okay? Like I said, this, this character has a code that they, uh, even though they are sexually active, they will not rape, okay? That is the line, okay? The bad guys rape, the villains rape, the good guy, no matter how screwed up he is, does not rape, okay? That seems to be the line, all right? Now, very often, the uh, uh, rape on TV, and I want to talk about it because it's, it's a topic that's been, that's been, you know, written a lot about, and I don't know if we've, as a guild, you know, gotten into it. But very often, rape is used as a storyline, as you all know, to give the female character something to do. That is true. That's what happens, okay? We don't have a storyline, so let's just, what, uh, what's the worst thing we can do, okay? And this has gotten examined a lot, you know, particularly Game of Thrones have been called out. I am a Game of Thrones fans, uh, uh, fan. I do think that they're sloppy on this topic. Okay, now if you look at, I don't know if people have heard of a social critic or uh, I don't know what she is exactly, uh, Anita Sarkeesian. And she examines sexist tropes in video games. And I would argue that these tropes exist in film and TV as well. One of the things, and I would say in particular, you know, R-rated movies and, and certainly on cable TV, that, you know, the idea of edgy material involves women as sexual objects. Okay, so if I want to write a scene and two bad guys are talking or two tough guys are talking or my cop wants to chase down a guy, I'll just put it in a strip bar. And we'll just have women on poles in the background, and that's really what happens. And I bet you we could find it on TV tonight, and it's lazy. Okay? What happens is also when female characters are raped, it proves, it validates the 
hero's point of view. Well, I wasn't there to save you. You were raped because I was not there to save you. You live in a world in which that happens. Okay, now there are many shows in which rape does not have to happen. Okay, but it's a trap. You know, I worked on a show, Life, where we had a female cop and we wanted to show she was tough. And I said, well, let's not just have that she's, you know, tracking down people because she was sexually assaulted. I think we got as far as episode three before we used that storyline. Okay? And, and it was just, you know, how that, that character was developed. I'll admit that, um, you know, on my show, Damien, you know, we had, uh, the, uh, you know, uh, when I wrote the Bible for the show, I had a, a lead female character, and right away I was like, well, you know, uh, maybe, you know, I came up with this crazy story, and she was raped in the story, and, and it was, and it had nothing to do with her. It had to do with what was the male character going to do about it. So the rape is there to activate the male character. Okay, so fortunately, we steered away from that story. And once I started looking at that character with, you know, and I had a, a lot of women on my staff, and once we started looking at that character, we didn't even have to go into that territory. It's a very edgy show, okay? I mean, the network and the studio were very, you know, like, okay, well, you know, I don't know if we can put this on TV or whatever. And we don't have that, that level of sexual assault. So, so you don't have to go to it. Uh, that was kind of surprising that, that once you take it off the table, I did this once in Walking Dead where, you know, and if people read the comics, you know that there's a, a tremendous amount of rape early on with the governor character in Michonne. There's a, a lot of rape, and at one point he's raping her so much he's toweling down and stuff, and, and then she, she um, you know, exacts revenge. Very often rape is to engage the, the female character in the war culture. It gives them a motivation for revenge and allows them to go out and kill and participate in violence. Um, as if the woman could not participate in violence just because she wants to protect other women and children or whatever or just stop a bad guy, but she needs to be raped to be activated a lot of times. So what happened was on Walking Dead, um, uh, so in the comic book there was this, this uh, rape and then Michonne uh, exacts her revenge by you know cutting off the governor's hand, cutting off his penis, scooping out his eye with the thing. It was just it was a lot of mutilation. I was like, wow, that's a lot to get on TV. I don't know if I can get that, and and I don't I didn't know if it was good for the show. So I came up with a scene in which you know the governor comes in and he's he's interrogating this character Maggie. And I wanted it to be a sexual assault of some type, but I, I didn't want it to be a, 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 a rape, um, if that makes sense. And so what we did was, you know, he says, you know, stand up, and he makes her stand up and takes off her, sh her she makes her take off her shirt and her bra, and she's standing there, she's humiliated. And he comes over and he, you know, forces it down on a table, and she says, do what you're going to do and then go to hell. So he realizes that if he rapes her, it's just, you know, it's just being cruel. He's not going to get what he wants out of, uh, he wanted information, you know. Um, and he moved off. And it was this incredibly scary scene, you know, and, and I think it was really hit home and was visceral and worked. And I didn't have to go to that stereotypical edgy cable TV rape. I've never written one of those scenes. I've been doing this now for a, a while, and, and I've been able to avoid it. And I don't think anybody would look at my material and say he's not edgy. So, you know, think about your female characters and think about how you approach that material, okay? 
Um, very often, you know, in horror movies, I'll just point out there's a trope there called the final girl in which the, the last girl standing is running around with a knife or whatever. So um, usually she may be raped, she may not be raped, but, uh, you know, it, it's, it's another... It's, it's another trope that is, is sort of a stereotype that affects uh, a women on film, okay? Um, now, I will say that one of Sarkeesian's tropes that she talks about is also women as, as a uh, prize, right? That women are very often just awarded to the male, I'm getting a lot of pressure right now. I can feel the energy that you want me to talk about anal sex. So I will, and I will humiliate my 15-year-old son who's in the audience. So on your way out, please leave a dollar for the therapy. But um, for some odd reason, in film and TV, there seems to be anal sex as a prize. Okay, so let's talk about the end of The Kingsman. All right, um, so the Kingsman is a James Bond dude. I'm spoiling it. I don't give a shit. And, um, and uh, this is James Bond dude's running around, he's, and he finds, you know, a, she's a princess. Okay, she's literally a princess. She's locked in a dungeon. He's, he's like, I'll be right back. I got to save the world. She's like, let me out. And he's like, I got to go save the world. And she goes, uh, you want to put it in my asshole? Okay. And, and he's like, I got to save the world. So he goes, he saves the world. He gets champagne and two champagne glasses and has to get back to her. And he gets in and he enters the room. And so like James Bond, we've all seen this scene where James Bond shows up with a bottle of champagne and, you know, and he's like, ooh, and he's going to you know, pull a shade or cut the feet or to M or whatever he's going to do. We've seen the scene a thousand times. This Kingsman dude walks in and, and he's all ready to, like, you know, ha have the bubbly and, and she's lying face down and her ass is hanging out. So he doesn't even have to open the champagne. He could use it for the next one. <laughs> So, so that's odd. That's an odd scene. So then, but then if you look at True Detective, which I am not a fan of True Detective, and I don't want to say, you know, um, um, I just, I just, I'm not a fan. But I was not a fan of season one, and you all were, and I was right. So there you go. But anyway, so, but, but with, with True Detective, there's a call in season one where, uh, you know, a girl calls Woody Harrelson and is like, hey, you know, I'd love for you to come over and put it in my ass. And he's like, yeah, and I don't remember if he does or not. But I was like, that's odd. That's just like an odd scene. Like, I, I don't know who's making those calls, who's getting those calls or whatever. <laughs> so I'm like, who the fuck started this? Like, what shithead started this? And to be perfectly honest, in 2008, I wrote a scene for Crash in which um, a character is having sex with a, a woman, and she leans over the, the seat, they're in a car, and she says, put it in my ass. So I started it, and, and I'm a moron, and why did I do that? I did it because I thought it was going to be edgy, I thought it was going to be cool, and the actress, right? came to me and was like, I don't get the scene. Why would she ask for this? What, what is she going for? Like, what is her motivation to ask for anal sex in the car? So, and I said to her, I said, she has to, okay, think about this. I said, she has to 
ask for it so that he, and this was not a scene in the show, but when he's bragging about this to his friends, he can go, she's so crazy, she asked for this, and the friends are like, what? And he's like, yeah, and all of this stuff. And and, uh, and she's like, okay, so I'm going to ask for this for a fictional scene that does not take place in the show. Um, I was like, yes. I couldn't get out of the male POV. Think about that. She was asking a legitimate question, and I could not answer it from her point of view, and I even created other guys to explain this. So, so it's very easy for me to get up here and talk about racism and sexism and all of that, and I'm just as fucked up as everybody, and, and, and I have my things, and what I'm trying to say is I'm mindful of this. I work hard at trying to unravel this shit so I don't make those mistakes, and those traps are still there. Okay, so so good luck. Okay, <laughs> okay. Um, so now we've talked about that. I think we'll we'll get to to some questions in a little bit. But let, let, I just want to kind of to, to go back to some things about the antihero. Okay. Now one of the things is that, like I said, this is very complex material, and it's gone, you know, a long time. Okay, and it keeps coming around. It's been here since, you know. I, if I'm right, 1826, and it's going to keep coming around and keep coming around. John Landgraf, the president of FX, made a statement that I'd like to respond to, okay? Okay, because I think this is important for us as writers. He said, quote, he said this a couple weeks ago. I, I forget if it was like TCA or something. But he said, there is simply too much TV. My sense is that 2015 and 2016 will represent a peak in U.S. TV, and afterwards we'll see a decline. Now, I love John Landgraf. I know him personally. I've sold him several shows. I've worked on The Shield with him, and, and, and I have a relationship with him. Um, this statement creates a panic in the industry. Okay, this has affected my conversations with agents. This has affected my conversations with, with um, executives on uh, networks and shows and producers. And what happens is people think that there's this panic, that there's this bubble going to burst. Okay? Maybe. But what I would put forward is that since I've been doing this since 1998, there has constantly be the, been the death of TV and film. All right? When I was out of work, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire was on four nights a week. And Dateline was blocking the, the, you know, I think it was Dateline NBC was blocking the rest of the evening, okay? Then there was going to be the internet, and remember we had a strike, and, and, and I supported the strike, I'll say that. But remember during the strike, everyone was like, we don't need the studios because we're just going to make all this shit for YouTube, and we're going to own it, and all the studios are going to collapse, and... I, I don't know if that happened. I must have missed it, okay? You know, video on demand is going to crush it. And, and what happens is these executives live a, in a world of fear. Now, I would say that part of the problem with FX in particular is that FX sort of cornered a very edgy marketplace that now everybody else has rushed into, and they're crowded. I know that they compete with you know, everybody, they have to compete with a lot more buyers for the same material, all right? And if you think about it, you know, and they're doing what they do, and they do very well, and I watch a lot of FX shows, and a lot of their material is based on pulp, like Justified or The Shield or what have you, you know, The Strain, I would say. 
Um, you know, and when they have a, a, a high quality show, the Americans, which just won, you know, best show on TV, nobody's really watching the Americans. Now, I could go back to my American hero and my, you know, uh, constant state of war. I think nobody's watching the Americans because we don't understand their war. Okay, they're Russians, and in the first episode, that character is raped. So even the point of view of the show is that the Russians are bad guys. They rape. We won't rape, right? All the stuff I've been talking about. Why would they fight for that part of the world? So it's hard to buy in. So yes, we could have the family. We can have a lot of well-done stuff. But ultimately, I don't think it's, it's digestible for that reason. Now, I would say that, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if FX tries to shift itself. You know, even USA, you know, I was talking to somebody about Mr. Robot, which I haven't seen, but, you know, USA went from Blue Sky to, to you know, Mr. Robot, and now, you know, FX will probably end up doing, you know, burn notice or something positive, you know, something Blue Sky. But it, the truth is these tropes, these American tropes, the things, the plots, everything that we're talking about they don't go away. They always come around. They need to be freshened up. They are there. They are ours. We can use them over and over. It may sound tired, but there's a tremendous, like I said, there's a tremendous amount of new voices out there. I think the, the field is getting very crowded. I feel like that's very excited, very exciting. But I want to end on this note, and we'll do some questions. But if, if we look at, you know, this panic, and I guess my, this coming panic, and I don't know if you felt it, but I would say don't panic. We have a tremendous amount of power as storytellers, okay? The executives are afraid, and right now they're making more TV. There's more different voices. There's a shortage of showrunners. There's a shortage of great scripts. Everybody wants writers, and right away, executives will talk about a panic. We don't know how to monetize that. That's their corporate stuff. Just write your scripts. Don't freak out, okay? And don't be afraid to use these tropes and freshen them up because I would like to read a description of FX's new show. Now, it's done by Kurt Sutter, who's a very dear friend of mine. But here's their description. The bastard execution tells the story of a warrior knight in King Edward's uh, charge who is broken by the ravages of war and vows to lay down his sword. But when that violence finds him again, he is forced to pick up that bloodiest sword of all. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> okay, thank you for that. And why don't we do some questions? Okay, so let's do one here and then we'll go to you. Okay? Hi, this is working. The microphone's working. Um, I'm curious what, you, uh, what your experience has been with the anti-hero, given that your latest show is the anti-Christ. Um, well, instead of that's a made, made person, I, I'm, I'm curious how that's affected your creation of something like Damien. Well, you know what? I, I've obviously gotten done a lot of research on this material, and really, you know, you know, I said I, I, I have a deal with Fox, and they wanted to develop this material. They see Hannibal doing well. They see um, Bates Motel, so they were like, Here, "Let's do the Omen." I said, "Great, I'll do it," but I want to do it my way. And 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 what I said was, you know, I I want if if you look at Omen two and Omen three, the movies, the guy is fully the kid. And then, and then Sam Neill are fully cognizant that that character is fully cognizant that he's evil. So he just kind of looks at you funny, 
and you know you're suspicious. Hey, you're evil, and he looks at you funny, and like a bookcase falls on you, or you get your eyes picked out by crows or some shit like that. So now you've just got a serial killer every week, right? And and, and we've seen that show. We've seen Dexter. We've seen you know Hannibal. We've seen serial killers. So I said I would love to. You know, it, it, my thing is is I you know broke down the word. He's an antichrist. So let's look at the word Christ. Christ is taught, okay, I was raised Catholic, Christ is, is, is taught in the in Christianity that he is 100% God and 100% human. An antichrist would be 100% human and 100% devil. Great, I've got a conflict, and what I have to do is have the humanity and the evil side warring against each other, Boom, I got it. I just go to this thing and, and, and I've got it, you know? And, and that's, that's the thing. As, as, as that character is developing, that's how you get the story, you know? So, so that's been the approach. And it's really kind of worked. But, but, you know, it's been funny because it's not easily digestible. Everybody wants him to, you know, the executives sometimes want him to be the arch bad guy or something. And I'm just like, I'm not, I'm not you know, that's a movie. That's not, that's not a TV show. You know, so I, I think we cracked it. I'm happy with the material. Did you have a question? I did. Mm -hmm. Do I need the mic? Yeah. Recording? Here you go. Have I been to these before? <laughs> okay, so um, it's twofold, but the first question, I, I'm curious. Thank you. First of all, thank you so much. Just comment first. Thank you for addressing the white male perspective, POV, and I've brought up similar issues and forums like this and I'm militant. So I'm glad that you said it. You're like militant, you know? I'm, I'm militant because okay. I, I read a, the Good Wife script, the pilot script, which is awesome. But I just noticed that all of the other characters were very specifically drawn or described in a way that the white male character wasn't. Mm -hmm. And it was just something that I noticed and I just mentioned it and asked the question, but then I was I was being hypersensitive. Mm -hmm. So thank you for addressing that. But when did you become aware of that? Well, you know, let me say, first of all, you know, here at the Guild, I am the co-chair of the diversity advisory group. Um, Shonda and, and I chair that, okay? And we have a lot of great people working on that. And, and, and my experience was, you know, I was working on the Shield, and I looked around the room, and we had a bunch of, you know, overweight, white, middle-aged guys, okay? And so so I, so I, we believed I was hired onto Nash Bridges off of a freelance. People don't really use the freelancers before, but but it was how I came in, and I, and, and I believe in it. And so so I called some agents, and I said, I'd love to get some people in here for freelancers, and, and I would love to see people of color and a lot of women, and they go, yeah, 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 you're covering your ass. Um, we're going to send you some more white guys. And uh, I was like, well, what? And so, so, so I found that whenever I brought this up, you know, and I still bring it up, you know, and when you bring up, you know, I, I'd like to get, you know, f more female directors in the show, you know, p people on every show I've worked on, you know, we just want the best, you know, and, and you hear this and, and you know, and the, the, the odds are stacked. And, you know, so I've, I started talking about it a few years ago. And when I started talking about it, um, the level of debate was really um, defensive. Um, people felt I was pushing for quotas, and I was just trying to discuss it. So, so I bring it up here because it is uncomfortable to talk about race and sex and this kind of stuff. And part of my approach is I, 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 I'm not 
pointing fingers, you know, as like I'm a holier than I hope I'm not looking like an asshole that I'm a holier than a liberal and it should be this is very complex. And so I find that if I'm willing to talk about my experience and, 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 and my mistakes and things I've gone through, it sort of makes people less defensive. So, so I've, I've, you know, I, I've told this story many times of, you know, I was in the writer's room on, on the shield and, uh, we had, um, a female writing team and we asked them to, um, speak up more. And they said, well, watch what happens when they do. And whenever they spoke up, it was like, honey, honey, or they got, you know, run over. And, and, and it was interesting to see the dynamic. But what was interesting was my male ear was tuned to honey. Oh, and I, yeah, I wasn't being called honey, but I, I would automatically go to the male interrupter. Okay, so I had to unlearn that. So, so I've, I've done some work here at the Guild and we've done uh, enough panels and stuff. And, you know, I know a lot of the candidates talked about, you know, diversity and we need to do more, you know. And I would just say, you know, there's plenty to do. We're looking for great ideas if people are interested in this topic. And if you have ideas, you know, I'm in the diversity advisory group and Terry Lopez runs, runs, runs the department. And, you know, I think more, even me just putting it out here today hopefully makes a difference in one school. Script. You know, hopefully one of you will go home and you'll look at how you introduce your female character and you realize that there's no reason for you to write, you know, hot but doesn't know it. <laughs> I don't know why, why do we write this? Why do we write that, that, I mean, just think about it, okay? Think about what a shitty, lazy line that is, okay? And someone's got it and don't feel defensive, okay? But... She's hot but doesn't know it. What, what, what is the saying? It's a male perspective. She's fuckable but not threatening to me. Okay? She's an easy target. She's approachable. Okay? Now, I don't know why this is used to describe a strong character. To me, that's an idiot. First of all, if you're hot, you know it. Okay? Okay? You're not fooling anybody. Okay? <laughs> So, so, but, but we write it, and we write it because people will say, but then the actress doesn't know that she's considered hot. So I'm like, okay, listen, actors are fragile people, okay, and so we're writers, and, and we're all fucked up, but the truth is, it, she just wants the part, she, 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 she knows, she's, chances are, she is hot, and you're casting her because she's hot. You don't have to write down she needs to be hot. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's just, it's just stupid. It's lazy. We do it. Don't do it. Just don't do it, okay? If I see it in a script, you're not getting hired. I'll tell you that right now, okay? I've, I've passed on people for that. Okay, let's uh, do this gentleman, and we'll do somebody over there. Yeah, I was just thinking. Well, hold on. I think we want to use a mic because we're being recorded. For NSA wants this, so. Well, it's a kind of an NSA, NSA question. Uh, this American myth. Yeah. Um, there's a big industrial complex that makes war. Yeah. And um, does that influence what gets made and funded and things like that? I mean, it, you're sort uh, of describing it coming from the population. I but bet you it's, it's why stuff gets pushed. I bet you. I bet you. I mean, if you think about it, you know, if you look at the development, exact, you know what I'm saying? I mean, uh, probably, probably. There's pro probably, you know, I, I won't say anyone's definitely saying, hey, we need more things about war. You know what I'm saying? But, you know, if you look at the act of war, okay, 
the act of war is about dehumanizing the opponent. What's the biggest show on TV? It's The Walking Dead. We can just run around and shoot them in the head. We don't have to worry about them being victims. We don't have to worry about their humanity. It's perfect, and it's not going anywhere. It's perfect for a war-loving society. There are kids love that show. You know what I'm saying? So it's going to continue for more generations because, you know, I read something that, you know, we fall in love with stuff we're passionate about around 14, 15, you know, teenagers, you know. I fell in love with a type of storytelling I saw on TV, and here I am. You know, there was, there was, it was uh, somebody that uh, probably uh, not a real study, but, you know, the Beatles and all of those musicians were influenced because when they were around 14, 15, they saw Elvis on TV. And then guys coming around in the 70s, early 70s, saw the Beatles. You know what I'm saying? So there's an impact. So those messages of dehumanizing the other and we have to fight to survive and it doesn't make a difference how brutal we are as long as, you know, we're not them, Right? That's getting taught, and this is a show I've worked on, okay? So I'm part of that party, too. It took me a long time to sort of unravel it, and now I guess part of going back to the Damien thing is, like, well, if, if war is important or war is an American theme, what's my version of that? And it, right away, it's, it's about injecting humanity, and it's a, it's a, it's a lot more complex and, uh, you know, that's how I'm going to deal with it. But, you know, trust me, the, the powers that be at Fox and A&E, which I think is partly owned by Disney, they had no interest in, you know, uh, an antichrist. You know, they love like, oh, it's about the apocalypse, it's evil, it's killing. Great, let's, let's put that on. So, yeah, you're probably right. You know, let's do uh, Karen, you want to? Thank you for your... Uh Thanks for your talk. It's wonderful. Um, I, Thank you. I, as much try as I might, I can't watch every show that's on TV. Um, no. But I'm sitting here racking my brain to think of a female anti-hero, a true anti-hero, and the, the way that the men are that's not victimized. And the closest I can come with is the lead in The Killing, which was not an American show. Mm -hmm. It was from Sweden, and um, and she was never sexualized, and she was never. It had nothing to do with. Uh, she was never physically in uh, in sexual jeopardy mm -hmm. or uh, abused that way. And most of well, I, I just think uh, it feels like it's time to come up with a true female antihero. But I don't know if, how it will work because it's she's not the gunslinger. I mean, it, it's going to take. Well, you can look at characters on Orange is the New Black. You know, uh, I would say Nurse Jackie has elements, you know. So so I think it, it exists. You just have to make sure that, you know, I think we need to make sure that it's not just a female male, you know. So someone named Sydney, Alex, Danny, you, you know. <laughs> a lot of times they, these become masculine, you know, just feminine male characters. They're, they're sort of surrogate. So, yeah. so, you know, but... Yeah, you know, but I would say that there's such a, a you know, a, a, um, a shift or an opening up, you know, you know, a lot of times, you know, when, when, 
when something breaks down, when you have a, a major control and it breaks down into a lot of facets, like say magazines used to be, you know, um, um, you know, major national magazines, and then that sort of broke down, and then there was like, you know, tons of magazines for a lot of different things, whatever, it becomes democratized, and people, uh, people's habits, reading habits became very specialized, okay? So right now, you know, we all know what the big shows are, but maybe, you know, you watch half of them, and I watch the other half, or whatever, so our viewing becomes specialized, and I think the storytelling is going to become specialized, so I think that's a great opportunity, yeah. you know, I think, I think, you know, if if, if, if somebody here can't write it, in this room right now, can't write a great female anti-hero, then what the fuck are we doing as a, as a guild? Like, we've got enough people. Somebody's got that script. So, you know, you just hope that you have the corporate powers back it or whatever. But, you know, like I opened my thing, my, my talk, anytime you try to do something, people are going to go, why would you do that? <laughs> that's, that's just, and you just have to kind of keep stumbling forward. You know? Thank you, and thanks for your work on the diversity oh, thank issue. You. Thank you. How about right behind you? Right, right there. And we'll come back over here. Hi. Hi. Um, okay, so it's not just the femme fatale trope out there. I mean, there's a ton of them. Like, if you look at Game of Thrones, you have, like, the Amazonian, the mm -hmm. father's daughter. Do you think that TV can can sort of move past those tropes or just put an original spin on them because it is this machine of, you know, churning out and all that. I, I, listen, you could, you, no, I think, I think these tropes exist and I think we put new things on. You know, what, like, let's talk about this, okay, because one of the things that I face is, you know, um, and I really haven't gotten this, but I, I thought I was going to get it. Um, with Damien, you know, why are you doing Damien? You know, is, isn't there, aren't there any original ideas? Well, I've tried to sell a lot of original ideas, but, you know, they're not selling. Okay, you know, I, I wrote a uh, prequel to uh, the Oval, uh, called the Overlook Hotel. It's a prequel to The Shining. Okay, people like this familiar stuff. Let's not forget, you know, Shakespeare, you know, wrote stories that had been written over and over, and he put a hell of a spin on stuff. Okay, so it's there for the taking. It's a matter of what you do it, and 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 it's very difficult now to write something that feels original because the audience is savvy. We've all seen hundreds of thousands of hours probably of material, and you know when something's false. So it's that constant search for something that's new and honest, you know. But you're going to have these tropes. You're going to have, you know, listen, you know, Damien's a wounded bad boy. Okay, you know, I'll take that. I'll start at that point kind of get people in the seats, and then you, you play with it. So don't be afraid to use the tropes because it, it, it can get you a long way. You know, if, if what Larry was saying about, you know, Hannibal Lecter only being on stage for, you know, 16 minutes or whatever he said, um, you know, it, this, it, they're effective because they hit on such a, a deeply emotional level. Okay? Okay. Um, right here, this one. Anti-hero. Oh, uh, getting back to the female anti-hero, don't you think that with American TV, part of the problem isn't the writing of the character, but the, the casting? Because, uh, you know, like if we look at Prime Suspect, that was a wonderful anti-hero that Helen Mirren played. She was an alcoholic. She was fucked up. She was a great cop. And then when they tried to do it here, I'm not saying Maria Bello is not a great actress, but... That she's so pretty, you know what I mean? It's just, it's, it's always, for me, on American shows, they tend to always go with a very physically attractive woman, which a lot of times, to me, takes away from 
the role. I hear you. I mean, first of all, I'd say Helen Mirren is gorgeous. I mean, I think she's, you know, I mean, she, she's, she's, so I, I wouldn't say that, that, um, you know, if, if you look at the women on um, Downton Abbey or whatever, I mean, they're certainly, you know, casting for beauty. That's that's true. Now, I will say, though, that, you know, um, you know, I'm not sure why Prime Suspect didn't connect or something. I, I, I didn't see that particular thing. But, you know, I will say that I do find the hardest job in Hollywood or the most brutal job seems to be being an actress, Okay, and when you cast, you cannot imagine, you know, how brutal people are behind closed doors or on, you know, one-on-one -on -one calls about actresses, about why they don't want to cast, you know, somebody um, in a way that they wouldn't be about men. So what I've had to do as a producer is to just say, we're not going to talk like that on this show. Now, I have some clout that I can do that, and people know about the work I do in diversity, and they also know I can be a bit of a bully if I need to be. But I won't tolerate a certain level of discussion about people's physicality when we're, or fuckability, when we're casting and you just take it off the table and you say it once and nobody really wants to be the bad guy who's then going to keep going back to that well <laughs> you know what i'm saying you know when if someone says like well i don't think that person's fuckable and you go well let's just talk about their talent let's uh, uh, that's just an archaic way of talking and a lot of female executives talk like that but once you say something it it just goes away the problem is people are not willing to say that, you know what I'm saying? And then you have to look at who the casting is and stuff, and, and, and you can see why people cast for beauty because they want to hedge their bets and because it's a sex, sexist society and stuff. So, yeah, I do agree with you. But I think what we have to do as producers is we sort of have to protect, you know, actresses in a way that we don't have to protect actors. Now, this might sound like, oh, you're coddling women or you're doing that, but listen – you know, I've got a voice, I'm going to use it. You, you know what I mean? So, you know, um, very often I find that, you know, actresses, when they get, um, um, when an actor has a question on set, very often, you know, everyone says, you know, all the guys rush forward and like, hey, let's pretend I'm a director and let's talk about it, let's find it, and it's all bullshit. And, and a woman asks a question and everyone's like, oh, it's such a fucking pain in the ass. Can she, can she just hit the mark and say the line? You know what I'm saying? So there's, there's a, a way that when, when, when a male process, creative process, will be indulged that is not indulged Unless it's like a superstar who's a producer on a show or something. You know what I'm saying? So there's a lot of work to be done. And this is part of why, you know, I'm thankful for opportunities to talk about this. Because I, 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 you know, I can't fix the system, but I can make sure people act respectfully on one show. And hopefully they go to another show and it spreads a little bit. Who knows if that was true. But, yeah, it's, it's so... Um, um, yeah, it probably is fucked up. <laughs> yes, sir. Well, I wanted to ask you about the Americans before, but now this is just a topic that you brought up. You kind of just referred to it in passing, but female characters who are just men with 
androgynous names. I wonder if you could, if you've given more thought to that distinction, because obviously with all the shows with, you know, women cops who are uh, now suddenly in positions where violence is, you know, an, an authority and, you know, do you still think about that? Like what do, getting into this essentialism, you know, do, do these, do they have different concerns as women? Well, of course some, but if you could just sort of expand on what you said before. Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, um, you know, listen, there, there are obviously cliches of, you know, um, uh, 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 you know, for female cops that they are, they're anal retentive, they're type A, they're, you know, or they're drunken and slovenly and they don't care, you know, they're rolling out of bed, they're hopping around because they can't find their other shoe, you know, you know what I'm saying? They, they, um, you know, are usually uh, not good mothers, you know, this is a problem that a lot of people, you know, you, you never really get a note from an executive about uh, a male character being a, da a bad dad. You know, he could miss a game, he could do something, you know, but you know he loves his kids. So, therefore, you forgive him. But if, you know, the mom misses something or does something, the mom character, um, the notes are very much that they're, um, the audience is not going to like them, Okay. And, and the audience, and now with, you know, message boards and stuff, you can see how people react to female characters. And a lot of it is true. People are harder on female characters than they are male characters. So, um, um, you know, I guess the, the concerns is, again, look at the cliches, and then how can you be more honest? How can you adjust it? How can you kind of get into it? But creating, you know, a, 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 a character, you know, named Danny, who's really just one of the guys and is, you know, basically just a male character, I think we can do better. I think we've seen that character and it's time to move on, you know? Um, yes, you, sir, this one. And then I'll get you next. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Hi. So, uh, especially on an anti-hero panels, when are we going to see so many anti-heroes we start seeing heroes again? And how do you define them? Because most of the people we kind of see as like the heroes, they're, they're kind of like Disney parents. They're always kind of dopey. They don't know what they're doing. I like the dad in modern they're family. They're not compelling. So they're not real. And, and they need to be conflicted. And I, would, and, and I think part of what I'm arguing is that the, the anti-hero is just the American hero. It's an individual who's willing to take matters into his own hands because he has a code that knows better and supersedes fundamental, what we consider fundamental uh, uh, American ideals of democracy, community, collaboration, teamwork, all of that. No, we want a can-do guy who doesn't give a shit what everybody thinks. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. He's willing to go up against the system. That's the American hero. We call it the anti-hero because he kills people indiscriminately, but that's the hero. The, killing people indiscriminately is a fundamental American trait. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's next to you. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. And then you. Oh, okay, ahead. sure. I mean, you commented a little bit on just point of view, and I'm interested in how, once you recognize that, you know, I mean, you're a white male, I'm a white male, but I would like to expand point of view, what are some tricks that you have learned other than just traveling and meeting people? I mean, how do you... How do you what? It's really, uh, on TV, it's really about opening up the writer's room, you know, getting people into the writer's room. You know, I'll give you an example that, that um, 
you know, I had a, a, a white male writer. We were writing um, audition scenes for um, one of the female characters. And this guy wrote a great scene, but in it, you know, his character was talking about her backstory, and she was saying, you know, uh, my sister, you know, always wanted to be, you know, was daddy's little girl, and, and you know, I wanted to be the princess or whatever. And, and one of the, the women writers in the room was like, eh, I'm so sick of this. I, you know, I didn't want to be a princess. I was like, what? <laughs> you know, and, and, and I was just rubber stamping the scene. And there had to be a beat where it was like, oh, okay, what I'm thinking is true may not be true. So now what would make it true? So now we brought that woman in to help polish that scene, and I think that scene was better. So it's a matter, now it's, it's, this is difficult. You know, in a writer's room, sometimes I find that, you know, when I'm being challenged by a male writer in a writer's room, I can alpha male that writer. And I could go, shut the fuck up. And it's fine, because we're all guys and we get it, you know? I wouldn't say shut the fuck up to a woman. Well, now I would after working with my staff, because <laughs> they tell me to shut the fuck up. But because everybody's comfortable and mellow and we've gone through. But there was one period where I had two women were, were challenging me, and I started to feel very uncomfortable. I started to feel bad. I, it started bringing up emotions that were very complex, and I was like, you know, and, and I sort of got angry in a way that I wouldn't get angry if I was being challenged by guys. I got angry about it, and they shut down. And then I realized later what had happened, and I yelled at them again for backing down. <laughs> okay, you see? So, again, it's, it's about the inner work we do, and it's a great question. Let's go to the gentleman in front. Yeah. Um, yeah, I already have a mic. Yeah, the, the guy with the mic. Yeah, ask the question. <laughs> this has been so interesting. Um, so what I'm gathering, right, if, if, the, if the American collective consciousness is, is in the POV of, the, of a white male, who, and it's inherently racist, right? I mean, is that news to anybody? Oh, okay. well, it's not, but actually phrasing it that way, and, you know, I see it, but I'm not, I didn't know if other white people yeah. think okay. of it that way. <laughs> but how do we think the... Um, how do you think that's going to change, or is it changing because of the emergence of, of, of all these, you know, the empires and these black, you know, men? Well, that, that's kind of like, now. you know, more people into the pool, you know what I'm saying? Like, do you that, think they'll survive, too? If yeah, the listen, that, that's, a, that's, that's a good show. I, I enjoy that show, and it makes money, and, it, you know, the, part of the issue is that when you have more people going for it, or you challenge the white status quo, there's a tremendous amount of psychotic white male backlash, okay? All right, and if you look at, I was talking about Anita Sarkeesian, who, and I would love for people to go home and watch her on YouTube. She does these half hour, you know, breakdowns, really astute, you know, stuff that, you know, talking about the history of video games and different tropes and stuff, it's really well done. And she's doing it sort of in a scholarly fashion. So, so she, since she was challenging this stuff, you know, if she was trying to, she tried to speak at a school, somebody called in a bomb threat. People have, you know, you know, and there, there was a thing in the gaming community where, called Gamersgate, which was an unrelated thing, but it sort of, I think, washed over to her as well, where, you know, women who were speaking out, just talking about it, you know, were being threatened online. There were uh, people were saying, I'm going to cut your head off, I'm going to rape you, um, publishing home addresses. 
houses that this woman had to, you know, hire security and move around. So there's there's a lot of 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 these these tropes go very deeply and 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 and, and you know um um will be defended. So I don't know if they they probably get borrowed, tweaked, you know, worn down. I think we're moving in the right direction. You know what I mean? But it's we have to have these conversations, but we have to expect, you know, I'm speaking to a friendly room, I believe, okay? <laughs> um, there are other people who may think I'm the Antichrist for speaking like this, okay? You see what I'm saying? So I think I think it's it's a matter of continuing these conversations in a civil way, okay? Let's do, like, uh, uh, let, 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 this one here. Hi. Hi. Um, okay, so... We're obsessed with war stories and, yeah. and war, and that's what a lot of our stories are going to be about right now. And that's inherently a patriarchal system. Women don't really fit into that, as you had previously mentioned with the rape and everything. How, how do you put a woman into that story and into the war tale when there, that role doesn't exist socially and still like truthfully reflect life and tell a great relatable story? Well, that's a great question. You know, to, to be honest, I, you know, you could find a way to do this. I mean, I, th I think that, you know, you, you, there are other entry points possibly. You know, I would argue that Homeland has a female main character, a very complex character who's in a war setting. Okay, now she's not running around with a gun, but she's, she, she's in that territory, and it feels incredibly plausible. Okay, now what's that? Not zero dark thirty, right? So, so, so it's it's. Oh, okay, great. So, so, so you see. So, I think that you know you do have. I don't think it's so. I I I don't feel that it's as you know um, shocking, different, unique to see female soldiers. Okay, you know, on screen, right? It's certainly very plausible and will be bought by almost anybody in a science fiction setting. Okay, that is true, right? Okay, that, that I mean, what's that? Ripley and Alien, or, you know, um, uh, Edge of Tomorrow, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, you know, so, what's that? Well, Amazon women from the moon. So th thanks for uh, thanks for burning me, dude. But anyway, so <laughs> but you know, but so so I feel like you know there's you know now obviously you know there's there's an issue with superhero movies, okay, where you know that has that that hasn't cracked yet, okay. That's probably coming up against the resistance. It'll crack. It takes time, but you know. Um, I would believe that America is so interested in seeing war, they just they just want to see blood spilled. So we'll get around to women too. Okay, um, let's let's uh, let's do this woman here in the, with the hat. Yeah. Okay, I guess I just wanted to. I guess I was kind of confused when you were talking about the the antihero and everything like that. Even when the, you know the questions are being asked and when you're answering you keep saying he and I was just wondering I mean it just seems like even in the room we as women even just talking about it and discussing it I mean even the question of the woman over 
over there, this last question. I mean, saying that women don't aren't in war isn't true, and I can say that as I'm a female veteran, mm-hmm. and I went to war. I went to Iraq and Afghanistan, and I, we are fighting. We have the guns. Mm-hmm. We have all of this stuff. We're doing the same thing that men are doing. We're going and kicking down doors. We're doing this stuff, mm-hmm. and we're strong women, and we're wives, and we're you know, mothers and all this stuff, and we have this type of thing, and I just implore that the whole room understand that and, and understand that we are. And I'm just saying, you know, and I, I guess my question was, I had to ask uh, my friend here that when you kept talking about the anti-hero and hearing he so much that I did end up getting confused and saying, wait, so are women not anti-heroes? I know they haven't been seen so much in the past, but I'm just wondering, from based on your description, it just seemed like we didn't fit in as women. No. Well, first of all, thank you for saying all of that, okay? And I'm not saying that women don't participate in war. I'm not saying that at all. I'm talking about portrayals in TV and about all this, and I'm saying that for some reason there's a resistance to seeing that. And, And I'm trying to make the case that there is a portrayal on TV, but perhaps it's not enough. Okay, and it's not, and 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 let me put a pin in that because I want to get back to something. Okay, now I am defining the American hero historically as a white middle-aged male. Okay, I went through that long list. So because of that, that's why I was saying he. Now we could point and really scratch our heads and say. What about Nurse Jackie? What about this? What about that? You know, what about Alias? You know what I'm saying? And you can maybe find things that are not really, they don't feel like satisfying answers. They're kind of half answers. There's a lot of work to be done. Okay, now, now what you're talking about, about uh, women in war, okay? Let's talk about this. One of the things was I recently did a panel in which Gina Davis, who has a Gina Davis Institute for Gender... Um, uh, I'm butchering the title, but it's like uh, um, uh, portray. Uh, what is it? Gender equality. Yeah, no, it's not gender equality. It's like gender in you know film and TV or something. I don't know. Everybody can look up Gina Davis, and I'm sorry because she was wonderful. She gave a wonderful presentation. One of the things that she said was that if you look at high power jobs like lawyers, judges, doctors, okay, um, women could be anywhere from. Roughly, you know, 25, 30, 35 to 45 percent of any given job. Okay, you know what is necessary? Like say, say like CEOs, they would be 30 percent of CEOs or something like that. Or judges would be, you know, 35 percent. Okay, something like that. Don't quote me on those numbers, but it was roughly it was less than half, but roughly a third or a little more than a third on TV. Those roles are filled by women roughly 10%, 15%. Portrayals of women do not reflect reality. So it would be very interesting to me to find out how many women are actually served and how many um, units are, what is the breakdown. You're not going to find that on TV. But if you had more than one or two women in a unit on TV, let me ask, so you were in a unit, how many women were in your unit out of how many men? How many total soldiers in the unit, roughly? Uh, we had about 2,000 soldiers in our unit, and out of the 2,000, we had about, I'm sorry, we had about 2,000 soldiers in my unit, and about, out of the 2,000, we had 450 B women. Okay, that's never going to happen on TV in this current state. 
Okay. And I was in the aviation unit, by the way. It was a combat arm, so just to clarify, okay, too. But, but you see what I'm saying? People would go, oh, let's have five girlfriends hanging out, washing their hair together. I mean, that's you know what I'm saying? Seriously, that's what you're going to get because 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 the the powers that be are not going to believe that the audience is going to believe that. So the portrayal of women on TV is is underserved, you see? Okay, so it's something that we have to push back against, and we have to make sure that when we, you know, cast, you know, I have a rule that when I'm casting background, I want it 50-50, okay? And I've said this, 50-50, 50% women, 50% men on, um, on, on any street scene or, you know, background. I have a shot in Damien in which a guy's chasing another guy down into a subway. There seem to be no women on the street. There seem to be no women on the walking down the stairs. There's about 15 guys in the shot. There's not a single woman on the street. So I guess one they weren't using the subway that day. But <laughs> but but you know, I'm even doing the work and it's not happening. You know what I'm saying? So so I hear you and I didn't mean to, you know, overuse he, but I maybe you missed the idea that I was defining the anti-hero as a he, okay? Cool. Sir? What's that? No, no, no. It's officially called the, Sorry, I lost it. It's, yeah, Women Institute on Gender and Media. Yeah, yeah. That's Institute on, what, Gender and Media. Yeah, okay. Glenn, nice to see you again. Thanks for coming out. No, thank you. And then we'll go, maybe two more questions, but go ahead. Um, so I'm a vet myself too, um, and you know, been doing the writing path, uh, currently doing a fellowship in Mayor Garcetti's office. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons I really took that opportunity is to see the collaboration and to see how that works. Mm -hmm. And I knew that how it's portrayed in television is not always like that. As you were talking about democracy and collaboration is, you know, the West Wing was different than it is in House of Cards. Mm -hmm. Um, do you think that... With the way television is, and as it progresses over time, do you think that's having an effect of the war in Christianity, and why certain things, you know, how much of how much effect do you think media has in the way the world is now? Has a huge impact. It has it has a huge impact and informs debates. And the truth is, most people don't do their work, and they get their news easily digestible. And you know, you know what I'm saying. And so, so you know, and and whatever the headline of the day is, and and you know, and it's probably usually been like that. So I, I what what I think is. Um, people react to a lot of media and they don't necessarily, and maybe it's just my job as a writer to kind of peel things back and to discuss it. You know what I'm saying? So I, I don't see that enough, you know, and I would like to see more of that, of, of some thoughtful, you know, debates. Because the idea is that what we get into, I think, in, in the society, and it makes for great sound bites, is, you know, we're at war with each other. You know, you know what I mean? Red states, blue states. You know, it's a lot more complex than that, you know, and there's a lot of different opinions and stuff that needs to be discussed in a civil discourse. But, you know, that doesn't make for good TV. So, um, you know, I have my hesitations about, about a lot of what gets put forward on TV. And then I feel that it gets reinforced by a lot of these lazy tropes. Okay? Um, sir? If we have 
an anti-hero protagonist that's white and subversive and ultra-violent, how do we how do we create an anti-hero that's also violent and subversive and non-white without having them and keep them familiar to an audience without turning them into a, a thug or a terrorist because because they are a different race they become a little bit less familiar and less sympathetic how do you separate that white male-ness I think I, I think you have to look at what that person is fighting for if that person is defending the weak is defending um, um, fits a lot of this other stuff has a sexual code um, there's more than enough uh, things on this checklist to hit so I think you know a, a character of color or, or a woman can certainly you know, you know, fit that, but you have to feel, you know, one of the things I'll, I'll say, and this is, and this isn't exactly that, but one of the things that was, has been interesting is that as I write female characters that, um, it's interesting when uh, female executives push back because they don't like characters because female characters refer to themselves. So males can say I, but if a female says I, uh, I've been told oh, she's always talking about herself. So there's a hyper weirdness to female characters. I think with a, a male character, a male antihero, as long as he's kicking ass for the right cause, you can get away with it. Okay, that's my personal belief. I could be wrong. Um, let's do this and then that gentleman and go ahead. Okay. And then is, are we okay on time or people like hot and crazy? Um, we'll, we'll do these last two questions. Okay. Go ahead. I just wondered if you've seen the show rectify, it seems to be different yeah. than so many shows that you were describing. It doesn't seem to follow. I mean, I think it's so great and I'm always expecting him to do something and then I'm disappointed and then I'm disappointed in myself because it's actually better that he does the unexpected and I just wondered what you feel about that show because it's so to me I it's think so it's great. a terrific show I, I, I'm friendly with Ray McKinnon and uh, we actually talked when he first started the show and stuff and and um, so I'm going to take full credit for Rectify I guess is what, is just, I'm such a jackass but um, you know that's an example I don't know how many people watch Rectify probably you know less than a million you know what I mean um, on a weekly basis, but it's recognized as a great show, and that's an example of getting different types of characters, different, uh, you know, subverting expectations onto TV. So I, I think it's a great time for that. Okay. Yeah. Last question. Okay. And I'll stay and answer questions afterwards. Wrapping it up. Uh, thanks a lot. Uh, appreciate it. Um, could you tell us first a little bit about what got you? How did you get your first start? Like, what did you write? How did you get in? And then uh, what advice do you have for us uh, writers trying to get into the business? Well, okay. Uh, well, I, listen, I wrote a spec ER. I wrote, I, I wrote a homicide. I wrote a Buffy. You know, I wrote... I didn't write for what I wrote, what I thought imaginary readers wanted to read. I just wrote what I liked, okay? And, you know, I answered this question before outside. And what you want to do is you want to develop your voice, Okay, you really want to kind of get a tone, get a sense of who you are. You want to take chances. The problem is that when you do that, you know, it scares agents, it scares other people because you might be eliminating yourself from, for, from contention for other gigs. Okay, so uh, an agency and managers like a broad approach to cover all bases. And really what's going to get you the job is to get you ahead of the pack by having a singular voice. So I would say you know, take chances. You know, I think what happens is when we write, we, we uh, censor ourselves, we qualify ourselves, we think about what are they going to write. Just put it out there. You can always delete it. 
you can always cross it out. You can always stick it in a drawer. But I w and this is a good place to end. I would say that that what what you know. I don't know if my career makes any sense or whatever. But I like my career, okay? And I like my career because I feel like I've taken chances where people were questioning me uh, about not taking chances. Why am I taking that chance? And I took a chance. You know, I'll, t I'll tell you right, right now, okay? Um, so I have a show on the air. It's, it's going well. Um, I hope season two will be picked up. And But, you know, I have something else in development. I might go help out on another show. But I'm a psychopath, and, and so I need, you know, to what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And part of the reason why I wanted to give this talk and talk about this is because I, I've decided I'm going to write a novel. Okay, now nobody wants to read my novel, okay? And, and when I told my, my wife I'm going to write, you know, and we have a, a tree house. There's, we rent this house and we have this tree house out back. And she's like, oh, so you're just going to go jerk off in the tree house for two years. <laughs> I was like, okay. So, so, but the thing is, you know, I don't know what happens on the other side of that novel. You know, that's the scariest thing I can do right now. I don't know if I can write a novel. I don't know if I can handle sentences like that. You know, I don't know if I have a good enough vocabulary. And, and, and so, so I have a lot of fear and anxiety about that. But I'm going to push through that. I'm going to write something. And if it's good, maybe you'll read it. And if it's not good, it'll sit in a drawer. You know, but that's what I do. I write, you know. So, you know, the truth is, None of our reps, none of our executives who are all fear-based want our material, and yet we have power and they are terrified of us, okay? When I go into a meeting, all right, and I, I go uh, um, and I sit down and they have seven executives across the table and there's me, and I started bringing my, uh, another writer with me, they send seven, Okay, <laughs> you know, they're stacking the odds. Okay, we have power as storytellers. Okay, we understand we can make an emotional connection. They represent corporate interests. All right, we represent chaotic, frightening, magical power. They hate us for it. Okay, and they're going to try to create a panic this week, so we need them. You see what I'm saying? Go write what you want to write. Okay, please. Thank you.